And today's sponsor is Reconciled. Reconciled invoices your clients, pays your bills, and delivers clear and accurate financial reports every month automatically. Ready to streamline your financials and prepare your business for the next big step? Visit Reconciled.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado Magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado Magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today, I'm here with Bill Snow. He is the author of Mergers and Acquisitions for Dummies. Thank you for being on the show today, Bill. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I always start off with my the running joke, and if you've listened to a couple of shows, you already know it, but the joke is, hey, you were born, and then you ended up on a show about mergers and acquisitions. Can you fill out that small gap in between? Can you give us your sure. origin story and connect us with kind of who you are and how you ended up writing the book and being in M&A space in general? Sure. Uh, nothing but happy accidents. It's not by any sort of a plan. And that's what I always tell people. If you put a plan together, people always say, I want to do what you do. And I always wonder why the hell's, what the hell's wrong with you? Why would you want to do this? And in life, you, you got to be open to different things that, that show up and other opportunities that show up. And sometimes it's, it's not forecasted. I'm a big believer in something else. Something else will typically happen and you have to be adept enough. Is this the right thing for me? So I grew up in the Chicago area from Chicago originally, live in the city now spent most of my life here, a couple stops elsewhere, but most of my life in Chicago. Got out of college. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Didn't know what I was good at. Tried some sales jobs. I, I worked for a retailer. We were buying up mom and pop retail operations, primarily in the Southeast. So I spent a lot of time in, in Georgia and Alabama, South Carolina, uh, a little bit in Florida. And came back to Chicago, got interested in startups and where do these business ideas come from and how do you put this together? So I worked for friends and family funded companies, angel funded, venture capital funded, kind of working up, working my way up the food chain. And we worked at one point I worked for an online source that was linking or supposedly linking entrepreneurs with venture capital. So I learned a lot about the financing game and venture capital and things like that. Uh, a couple of years after that job ground to a halt, a friend of mine who had worked at the same company was working for a middle market investment banking firm. And so they needed somebody to execute transactions, somebody who can make phone calls and uh, think quickly and read balance sheets and, and understood business and so forth. So they couldn't find him. So they called me and I very wisely turned down the investment banking job, I think four or five times. And the, the owner called me, it was Memorial Day weekend. And he said, I'm not taking no for an answer. He caught me in a moment of weakness. And so I said, okay, fine, I'll go be an investment banker. So everybody thinks it's some sort of, I don't know how to get into this kind of stuff, but I, that's how I got it. And I turned down the job. So I didn't really want to do it, which is the big irony. I thought it was just going to be another sales job. And because I was focused on the execution. So we had clients, someone puts the material together. My job was to execute materials out, set up the meetings, get the offers to close the transaction. 
And what I found, one of the great things about M&A is when you are selling something, you're actually buying because if you have a good company that you're selling, you're probably going to get multiple offers. Buyers are chomping at the bit. They're always looking to deploy capital, whether it's private equity firms or strategic companies. They want to make acquisitions. And so if you've got a good asset that you're selling, you're going to get multiple offers. You can sell the company only one time. And so it was a, a great realization that, that I made, not that it's anything I figured out. Anybody in business knows that. But uh, I did that, really enjoyed that. I've been doing that since for almost 20 years, since 05. As far as the book, going back to the venture capital days, I had a business a meeting that did not go well. And I was very upset at myself. And the chairman of this company said, what the blank do you know about venture capital? He did not say blank. You can fill in your own expletive, whatever you want. And I was so upset that I'd been working on this article or just some very rough ideas. And I thought, well, I'll finish this article. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. And I kept writing and it turned into a longer article. I'll make it a two-part, make it a five, 10-part. And then I thought, well, I'll make it a book. I'll weave a narration through it. So I kept doing this and having a lot of fun. And I called it Venture Capital 101, which you can buy on Amazon, by the way, for a dollar, I think I sell it for. Ooh. And I didn't know what to do with it. I made a PDF. I sent it out. This is back in 03. And it went all over the internet. I was a very, very minor viral hit before that was a term. People are contacting me with offers, good, bad, and indifferent. And if I knew what to do, I remember thinking I could do something with it. I didn't really know what to do. So a couple of years go by, that's when I started working at the middle market investment banking firm. Wiley Publishing somehow got a hold of that little PDF booklet I put together on venture capital. So they reached out to me to write a book. So people always ask, how did you get around the copyright? That one always cracks. No, Wiley, it's an official Four Dummies book. Wiley contacted me to write the book. Right. And they had another right. idea. It took a couple of years, but eventually we settled on mergers and acquisitions for dummies. That was in 10. The first one came out in 11. And we just had the new one, the second edition right here over my shoulder, mm -hmm. just came out at the end of May this year, second edition. That's awesome. So we did cover the, the book a little bit. What's the logical next step here? Let's talk about some of the deals that you've uh, overseen. Some of the stuff you can talk about. I know NDAs exist, but from a high level, let's jump into what were some of the experiences you had in mergers and acquisition transactions that led you to gain this knowledge and, and to be able to write the book? I know you've had to have done multiple deals by the time you started writing content. Yeah, when I started in the business, I was in my late 30s. I didn't know anything, which is probably the best way for me to learn. So I, I got tossed right in there. I had to figure out, I had colleagues, of course, I could ask questions and get some guidance, but I didn't even know that some sort of M&A process existed, that steps existed. I had to figure all that out. And that was very helpful. And you see, when you see the end goal, okay, a closed transaction and a wire transfers and you get paid for the work and so forth. When you see that goal, then you can fill in, backfill in all the steps that are needed to get there. That's very helpful to me. The first couple of transactions I worked on did not close. One was a, a small business with just a little bit of technology. Someone was trying to uh, spin out and we weren't getting, I think we were getting fair offers, weren't getting many offers, but I think they had stars in their eyes in terms of what that might be worth. That didn't close. There were a couple other things, but we finally started hitting our stride. We, we sold off a marketing company to a large company down in, in Dallas. And that I was a big part of that. And then some of the other transactions that, that I worked on basically soup to nuts. We sold a seller of nurses, scrubs, professional attire, a distributor of, of those, and also sold a manufacturer of drink dispensing equipment, coffee equipment and tea and bubblers that you see in a 7-Eleven and, and things like that. And what you learn, and a lot of other transactions, and what you learn by doing this is, yeah, you have to have 
a process. You have to have a step, step-by-step process. Okay, we're going to put the materials together, a buyer's list. We'll reach out to the buyers. We'll get the initial offers, indications of interest. We'll set up meetings with maybe some of those groups who have expressed interest. We'll do the management meeting, or maybe provide some more information. We'll ask for a letter of intent. We'll negotiate that. We'll pick a letter of intent. You can only pick one winner. There's only one company to sell. Then you go to due diligence and purchase agreement writing, and then you close the transaction. So those are the, the steps to getting a transaction done. And so by, by doing that and understanding that, I think that helps, but you also have to be adept enough to realize that something else will happen. I mentioned that at the onset, something else quite often happens. And so you might have a linear idea that a process should take seven, eight, nine months. Everybody else thinks that's long. Most firms I've worked for always want to say you get it done quicker. We've never gotten deals or rarely happens because something else happens. The client is either slow getting information. They've got a business to run. And sometimes they don't realize the amount of information that is needed to put the book together that's needed for due diligence. They will plan uh, vacations right in the middle of what we thought we were going to do management meetings. And so you've got, you have to adjust and, and, and things like that. Something might happen with the company or the buyer. Things always tend to take longer. So having a number of transactions on our white belt and then getting a chance to write a book was very helpful because it, it allowed me to really dive deep into the process and the steps that are involved in an M&A transaction. And the corollary to doing that work is I learned how I learned, which is I experience and then I write it up. I've always enjoyed writing. I'm a writing preference learner. Some people are reading preference learners. I was never a reading preference learner. That's why I think I was always a better teacher than I was student. Cause I thought I could probably do it better than the teacher. Some people like to get their information delivered visually or they want to hear an audio book. That to me is really bizarre. I don't know why anybody want to listen to somebody read a book. You got to read it. I'm joking that whatever works for you is important. But for me, writing is what the key is. And it was very fascinating for me to go through the process that I already knew very well, but be able to think and I have to explain things. And I made other connections along the way. So it was very helpful to me in terms of the work that I do. I am extremely on the visionary side. And you would think I wouldn't be visionary audio considering I have a hearing, you know, hearing issues, but I am to the extent that I think a lot of it had to do growing up. I was dyslexic and I still am to some extent. So reading something was difficult for me. Sure. So I got really good if the teacher ever explained it up there and said it, I remembered it. So I made it through multiple college degrees with very few notes because I never missed a class ever. And the only questions I ever missed on the test is that they didn't cover it in class. A lot of times I wouldn't even read the reading assignments if they covered everything fairly well because I just remembered what they said. But I still did good in college. But there is that ability to, I find that the fastest way to learn something is have to teach it to somebody else. Sure. Right? We had a real estate education company and what we used to do for a little while there, it still exists. I just, I, I sold my interest off to the, the partners there but I think they're still doing it. I haven't checked on them in a while. One of the things we do is if there were some free classes we did and we catch students and we come back to do the same free class, if we caught you there the third, the, the third time. It's like, they're like an eight week program. On the third cycle you ran through, you taught the class, right? We would actually send you up there. We would give you the notes. We'll walk with you, but you got up there and you helped us teach it. You were the, uh, cause there's always somebody up there helping doing math and stuff. And eventually the, we, we had the students teach them the classes and then they learn it. They don't have to come back because the, the best way to learn yeah. something is to have to teach somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you get frustrated too when someone is showing you how to do a computer program or what you have to do and they're hitting all the buttons and I get, no, 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 no. I will hit the buttons because I'm watching you, but I mm -hmm. need to actually do yep. that so I can remember the steps and where to go and all that kind of yeah. stuff. And I, I think also. When you talk about education, I, I was always very good in math and I got straight A's. I never studied. It just 
came naturally yeah. to me. I couldn't understand why anybody struggled in algebra and geometry. Those were easy. But and so I did some tutoring in my 30s for a few years. And I thought, well, I was really good at math. So give me some kid who's struggling with math. And that was probably a mistake because I had trouble explaining what was just self-evident to me. And I look back on that and thought, probably been better off maybe working with a kid who was struggling in subjects, maybe where I had to struggle and had to work and had to figure out how to learn. It's kind of like a, an athlete, a professional, a basketball player. That's why the, the legends of the game, the best players often do not make good coaches because yeah. they, they can't understand why people don't, can't do what they do effortlessly. And that's why I think some of these also runs the guys that don't make it or at the end of the bench for a while that really had a struggle, maybe just to hold on to a position on a pro team, probably make better coaches because they've had to learn how to learn and they can probably teach those things to other guys. Yeah, I was really good at math and the, I don't think I can teach it because I don't follow the process. A lot of the stuff that I've done so much, you just do it in your head. If somebody says, if somebody gives you a math problem, you just kind of know the answer to it after a while. So <laughs> to, to, to explain to another human being how to do it step by step on paper to where the, the teacher or the instructor would accept sure. the answer. Show your work. I've got kids now that are 12 and seven. Show your work. I was like, I can look at it at the equation and go, the answer is this and you're wrong. But to show your work is like, I just, I don't know how I did it. I did it well, differently than your teacher wants you to do it. I promise you that. <laughs> so, some of the way they're teaching math now is, it doesn't make sense. It's like they're teaching for people, teaching math for people who don't get math. Yeah. And it, if I was taught that way, because I've seen some of those things, I don't think I would have done very well. Like I would have been able to figure out the end result, but following the, the steps that they have, I, I, I don't get that. And maybe it's just, I was taught math correctly. Um, and I, 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 like I said, I did have a, a natural inclination towards it, but I, I think some of these, these so-called shortcuts or easy ways of, of teaching math probably end up hurting people who have a natural uh, ability in, in mathematics or and that probably applies to other subjects as well. Yeah, 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 I can see that. So now you're in this, you're a mid-market investment banker. For a lot of our audience who are buying SMBs and small to medium businesses, in my view, and, and I play in that realm of $10 million and under, so we're usually talking to business brokers as opposed to investment bankers, that mid-market that where you're starting to talk to investment banker, in my purview, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's usually somebody's got a 5 to $10 million EBITDA above, and now they've got something we're shopping around. And it's almost, I, I consider it like a, a broker, somebody who's going to market your stuff and an investment banker, somebody's going to package it up and almost be a concierge to the, to the sell. An investment banker, in my, from my experience of interviewing you guys, they're going to go shop this deal around. They'll strategically find people who may not even know they're looking to buy something and reach out to them and go, hey, I've got something you need to take a look at, right? I'm disturbed by this. Hold on. You're, you're telling me that other people have figured out they can represent the owner in a business transaction. I mean, I'm not the only person. Who does this? This is a shock. Be careful how much credit you give business brokers in the word represent. <laughs> All right. Well, I know, think there's... I think it comes down to passive versus active marketing. Yeah. A lot of brokers are very passive marketing. They throw it out there and hope people call them. And the investment makers actively go out and seek a market for a business, right? That's a very good way of putting it. Yeah, that's exactly how I would, I would describe it. And then that's not too belittle brokers because, I mean, look, some are going to be good, some are going to be better. But yeah, they do have more of a, a listing approach, like, like you're selling a piece of real estate. You put the listings out there. You look, you want to buy a house, you want to buy an office building, whatever. What do you do? You go to a broker, you see what's been listed and, and that works. I mean, for certain things, a corner pizza shop or a laundry mat, things like that, that, that probably makes sense. And there's certainly what it makes sense to pay the, the sort of fees that you would pay an investment bank to sell a smaller business. 
But yeah, you're right. An investment banker will make a market, so we'll run the process. That's part of the reason why we want to have a company that's going to be of a size because we need to charge fees that are going to be commensurate not only for the work, but we'll have multiple people work on it. And you sell a, a company that's going to fetch a million dollars that just doesn't leave a lot in terms of paying a reasonable fee to somebody doing all of that work. And so that, that becomes part of it as well. We used to want at least a million in earnings, EBITDA. I, I think those deals are, are difficult. It's 2 million plus, even 2 million might be a little bit difficult because companies want to make bigger acquisitions. Why? It's going to take the same amount of time, whether you buy half a million in EBITDA or 5 million, it's going to cost the same. It's going to, might be even more difficult to buy the smaller transaction. So why burn all those calories for half a million, million dollars in earnings? You might as well apply the same cost in terms of time, in terms of dollars, hiring lawyers and accounts and so forth to buy a more substantial business. That's part of the reason why sometimes selling the smaller deals is, is a little more difficult. Yeah. I've heard it. Yeah, I've heard real estate, as they said. Um, it's easier to raise it's millions easier. than it is hundreds of thousands. And in, in this realm, I think it's easier think to sell, at least as a strategic and public companies, it's easier to sell that $10, $20 million company than it is to sell the 1 million. Absolutely. And it kind of goes into the fundraising world too. Everybody's got an idea. They got a nephew that's got some sort of app that's going to change the world. Then, And I call the million to $5 million, the land of doubt. I get hit up so many times, whether it's through LinkedIn or just other overtures. And, and they always say the same thing. All we need, we're just looking to raise a million dollars, $2 million. And that is the worst place to, and it can get done, but it's the worst place because it's too big for friends and family. You might be able to get a couple hundred grand out of friends and family, people who, who don't know better and they'll pull back you because of you. But in, in terms of going to an institution, a venture capital firm, private equity firm, and, and yeah, some of the times the smaller deals get done, but it's the same thing. If I had a hundred million dollars to invest, am I going to make $100 million investments and have to track all of those? Or might it make more sense to take that hundred million and make four five, six investments where it's going to be much easier for me to stay in touch with all of those companies. And so people raising money need to think about that as well. So that million to five million is quite often the land of death, really difficult to find, to find money at those ranges. I learned that the okay. hard way. I created a startup many years ago, online dating service of all things that kept people honest in their profiles, which turns out I never got mar product market fit because nobody wants to be kept honest in their own dating profile. I went out to the VC round, tried to raise the capital, and I was trying to you know, play a game where I was only going to raise eight or $10 million in capital. And I was going to tackle big cities first, Dallas, New York, San Francisco, get a product market fit in those markets and then expand out. E-Harmony yeah. just raised like the week before, just got closed on $100 million worth of funding. And the VCs are looking like, we're not going to compete with them and you're not raising enough money to even make us yeah. in, right? It is a tough game if you want to get into the venture capital game. The first thing is don't. Mm -hmm. it, it is difficult. The VC firms spend all of their time up and down Sand Hill Road. They spend all their time fending off the great unwashed or showing up with, with crummy business plans or some crummy idea and that's going to change the world. And it's got to be tiring for them because the deals that get tossed over the transom, they're just ideas and maybe some are good ideas, but most, they have no idea what they're doing. And that's why it's refreshing in the middle market world. Things are different. It's the buyers. It's the private equity firms in particular who are contacting guys like me, investment bankers, looking for transactions. So things have flipped in terms of the demand from the money sources. So in the venture world, it's tough to get a, to get their ear. In the middle market world, the private equity world, it's the PE firms.
or looking for the deals. I used to live right down the street from him. I lived right down in uh, right, in Redwood City. I could drive to Sand Hill anytime. So sure. I'll, I'll be honest, that was probably my third or fourth pitch. I came up with ideas. I would send it across to my pitch deck to them, and i just get rejected. They wouldn't even let me come in and do my yeah. dog and pony show. And when they let me do the dog and pony show for the, the dating site, they told me, like, hey, that sounds good. Come back when you got something. Put a team together. <laughs> build some software. I spent yeah. hundreds of thousands of dollars of oh. my money, 26 employees in, across the world in India and other places, built this thing out and then turn around and like, yeah, we're still not funding it. So lesson learned. But thought what? I had something because I got their audience. I got their intention. It's like, yeah, yeah come in and show us that. They don't want to be the one that says no yeah. is, is the problem. And the other thing is, oh, we love it. When you find a lead, let us know. When you find some other sucker to price this, then we'll probably yeah. still turn it down. Yeah, but, when you find the lead investor, that's another thing. If you get a lead investor, come back. We, we just don't want to be the lead on this one. Basically, if, if this is all news to you, if you're asking these sort of questions and you don't understand, then the venture capital game is not for you. It's, it's kind of like buying something expensive, right? If you have to ask the price, you can't afford it. So it's the same thing. So I would always recommend if you want to get in the venture game, don't, okay? People with much more experience, if anything, if your young person get hired, by a venture funded business and work way up there, then maybe you get on, you become known and that might lead to some other opportunities, but just with no experience and just an idea, good luck. And the other thing too, any idea that you have, because I've been the scout for venture capital deals and everybody thought they had the original deal because they're very insular. They're just thinking about themselves. And I'm thinking, I saw five of these last week right. doing basically the same thing. I mean, this is what you'll have to, this is the hard lesson, all of you listening. Nobody has an original thought. Yeah. What anything that you try this, think of a name for a rock and roll band. Think of a name and then try and see if it's been thought of before. Yeah. Probably right. everything has been thought of. Yeah. Very few people have an original thought. Yeah. It, it wasn't my first thing either. I mean, before that, I spent years working at venture capital backed startups. And uh, I even got to go a couple of times to the pitches for second and third rounds of stuff to be the tech, not the guy to do the pitch, but be the tech nerd and in the back of the room because somebody asked a really technical question. Sure. The CTO couldn't make it. They sent me. It usually wasn't the CTO type of guy because I don't write software and I refuse to. But that I've been in the room often enough that it goes, I'm going to do it for myself this time. It's a different thing when you're in the front of the room. It's totally different. So yeah, I agree with you. If you, if you haven't done this and you're thinking you're going to raise capital and, and buy a business, don't or go find somebody that's done it 15 times. Let make them your lead and just follow. Yeah. Yeah. Some people, you can't turn off entrepreneurs away from an idea that's just stuck in their head. If you just got to do it, you're not going to change your mind. You're going to do it anyway. Go find you somebody that's done it 10 times. And that's how you're going to get it done. The people who haven't done it, I always tell them the same thing. Okay, this is what I want you to do. Get a piece of paper, get a pen, and I want you to write down on this piece of paper. Bill said, do something else. <laughs> And I want you to put that piece of paper in a drawer, forget about it for one year. One year from now, I want you to open up that drawer, read that note, and give me a call. Let me know if I was right or wrong. I've been saying that for years. One of, one of the things in those VC pitch, somebody actually said to me, said, uh, you don't have a, a company here. You have a, a patentable software idea. Because we had algorithms to keep people honest and stuff. Because you should go yeah. pitch that to the big guys, the Harmies Match and all those guys. Yeah. So yeah. after yeah. it collapsed and there were some financial and fam family issues that happened that made me change gears. I lost my mom and my dad within 18 months of each other. And I realized I, oh, I didn't right, want right. to, it was kind of dramatic. It gave me a chance to set back from everything and look at it. And I started, all the conversations start echoing in your head when you have a moment of silence and you're not in the weeds getting something done. And I kept hearing, well, you should pitch these other guys, your technology and sell, license the technology and sell it off. 
So I can't say who, but I reached out to a couple of them. And one of them was just really honest with me. Go, look, I'll be honest with you. We knew what you were doing. We seen what you built. We were kind of intrigued to see if it worked because we we pulled our customers years ago and nobody wants to be kept honest in their profile. If you got traction, we might have been your an acquisition target. You might have been an acquisition target yeah. of ours, but yeah. we were pretty yeah. confident our customers wouldn't go for it. They just tell you something like, you should have told me that before I spent every money, every dime in my 401k and some friends and family money. Yeah, yeah. I know. It's unfair. And I think part of that too is people will look to a third party as some sort of validation, yeah. right? If we raise venture capital, they're validating the idea. And the same thing in, in my business, middle market investment banking. If Bill hires us or someone like Bill hires us, then they validate our view of the business and, and our view of the valuation and, and they'll be able to go do Nobody has an ability, I call that magic words. Nobody has that ability to whisper something in someone's ear and you know, someone, I'll, I'll pay $10 for something and you whisper your magic words and they come back and say 15, I'll pay 15. Nobody has that ability. And I think that a lot of people look, uh, and it's a flawed thing. They look at that funding source as a source of third-party validation. And especially the venture game, what, what you have to understand if that's the world that you're in, ask yourself if you have brain damage, first of all. <laughs> but even if you do raise money, that's not the end. That's just the start. You thought you were working hard to get the money. Now you're going to be working really hard to turn that money into more money. And I think a lot of people miss that because they just view this. They see these rounds that are being raised in tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, and they think that's success. That's just the starting point. Yeah, if you look at my profile now, it says one of my favorite things to put on the profile it says, but can you exit, right? Like, because people pitch me stuff all the time too. And my, I was like, yeah, but can you exit? We're not profitable. Yeah. Are you building something exitable? And, and nothing proves market. You said you as an investment banker can't make a market. Uh, a venture capital, one of the top Sandhill VC firms, Y Culminator, funds you. Doesn't mean you have a product, right? Because they fund all yeah. kinds of ideas and, sure. and they're brilliant. They're probably one of the best at it. But it doesn't mean you're going to succeed because they're betting on one, one of 100 funded companies that they fund is going to be a home run. Nothing proves it. You know, my thing on this is nothing proves it like the market. Show me you've got product market fit. You're growing revenue. The people are paying for your service. Now we know you've got something, right? And, and, and it needs, needs to scale and be able to grow quickly without having to put more and more and more, and more money yeah. into it. You know, what, what you said there too is an interesting point. And it's something that a lot of the early stage the people, the, the wannabe entrepreneurs, I don't think fully understand. You talk about they make hundred investments and only one's going to turn into whatever Google or Apple or Amazon or these big behemoth companies that are worth tens, hundreds of uh, billions of dollars now. And so people think, well, these VCs have money. They just throw money and ideas. What you have to understand is they will vet every single management team, every single idea as if it will turn into a billion dollar business. Knowing that not all of them, maybe a small number will actually get there, but they're just not throwing money against the wall and seeing what sticks. They are going to bet everything. So they're not necessarily crazy risk takers. Risk is part of their game, but they are going to screen everything as if it is going to be the next Apple or Microsoft or Sun Microsystems or whatever big company that you want to think of. So very important if for some reason you want to get into that game. First of all, don't go do something else. But if you want to get in that game, Ron, as you said, they, they should work for somebody else and learn the business by being an employee for somebody else for a while. Yeah. So let's jump into like buying companies instead of building it. We talked a lot about, about don't raise VC funds. I know you play in the mid-market range. What 
to you is a viable business. It's not going to be your mom and pop doing $200,000 a year as a heat and air service, right? If you're looking to be like, okay, I'm going to get into something that's fairly steady and I'm a, a safe bet to, for a good, solid entrepreneur with great skills to acquire, what would you say the minimum entry point should be for them? Somebody looking to make an acquisition? Yeah. Well, that depends on what their goals are, what they're looking for. If it's an individual, do you have the wherewithal to compete with a large private equity firm with large strategic buyers in the way that they might bid on a 5 million EBITDA business? Probably you're not going to be able to have the capital to meet that. No offense to you. Some do. If you do have the capital, you probably would have done something already. So if you're looking at making, you want to be an entrepreneur, then you want to look at, at businesses. First of all, what is something that you like? Do you understand the business? What's going on with the, the nature of the sales? Is it a long sales cycle? Do they have a big concentration with any buyer? Do they have any concentrations with suppliers of the product or the materials used to make the product? And what sort of business do you want? Do you want to get into manufacturing? Do you want to be a metal vendor? Do you want to distribute? Are you a value-added distributor? Do you want to do some sort of business service? What are your skills? What are you good at? What is the team like at the company? I mean, are you looking at being the president and running that company day to day and that's going to be your main focus? Or do you want to buy numerous companies, maybe be the chairman and have an executive team that operates it? Do you have a team now at that company or do you need to replace uh, key people? So myriad factors, myriad decisions go into it. And as with a business owner who wants to sell the business, we always say, put together your plan. Let's figure out what you want to do and then we'll find the right buyer. That's the same thing for the buyers. Buyers should be thinking about what are they looking to do? What do I want to do? What am I good at? What am I not good at? That's something that I think very few people have a good handle on. Everybody wants to talk about their skills. Very few people have an ability to say what I'm not good at, what I don't like. And if you're honest with yourself, you talked about being honesty with your matchmaking business. If you're honest with yourself, especially with your weaknesses, that for me has been a huge eye opener, and especially if you uh, want to be an entrepreneur, figure out what you're bad at because you either have to bolster those skills or find team members who can handle those things that you don't like to do or you're bad at. And today's sponsor is Reconciled. Are you an entrepreneur or business owner thinking about your exit strategy? Or maybe you've just landed a business through acquisition and the books just aren't the way you need them to be. Let me tell you about Reconciled, your dedicated partner for industry-leading virtual bookkeeping and accounting services. Reconciled pairs you with skilled professionals who empower you to grow your business and prepare it for success, whether that's your exit or taking that new acquisition to top performance. Imagine having high-level financial management without expanding your team, from bookkeeping to CFO services, tax advisory, and even fully outsourced accounting, Reconciled has got you covered. They help you make the best business decisions, keeping your end goal in mind. And the best part? Reconciled understands acquisitions. If they have acquired three accounting firms in the past three years, and their founder, Michael Lee, mentors others in searching for acquisition, raising capital, or trying to aggressively scale. Reconcile invoices your clients, pays your bills, and delivers clear and accurate financial reports every month automatically. Ready to streamline your financials and prepare your business for the next big step? Visit Reconcile.com today and let them get your books in order. Reconciled, making bookkeeping a breeze. That's Reconcile.com. I would say not only find team members that are good at what you don't, you're not good at, but understand the process of finding them and know how to find a second one if that one leaves, right? Because I've had really great partners and life changes and 
they get married and the spouse wants to move away or whatever happens. It's funny as you, if you're a business partner of a small business and your partner gets married, you almost got a new partner in the business, right? Because my wife says we need to move to this state. I'm not in business with your wife. I'm kind of in business with you and we're doing something here. Yeah, but I still got to deal with this. And now all of a sudden I have to deal with it. So that said, not only find that great partner, but understand the process you took to find them and understand what you would take to do it again, right? It's going to take, you know, a lot of times it's going to take you months, five months, six months to identify people, build that bond, know that that's the right person to, to bring in. So understand sure. that and be ready for it. And not that your current one's ever going to leave or do anything, but just understand what it took. Because I have no idea how I found a couple of the ones I've had in the past. And I'm still looking for a great operator that would be my second. The sole reason I host monthly meetups for mergers and acquisitions people is I'm looking for somebody who is less visionary and more operator oriented. So a lot of times I meet somebody, I really click in these rooms and I say, hey, can you take this EOS test that tells you whether or not you're busy? I don't tell them why, but uh, (laughs) the whole goal is at some point I'm going to find somebody that's just rock star operator and hey, you know, I click, we should chat some more and we'll build a relationship, see where it goes. But uh, I'll be a Zoom, of course. You you should get into these outsourced CFO people. You you want somebody who's an operator. You want someone who obviously understands the the numbers and and, uh, accounting and the, the financial statements and so forth. That might, you know better than me, that might prove more fruitful too, because a lot of those people, I mean, they've done well, they've got some money, maybe they're outsourced, but they might be open to the right opportunity going full-time at a particular uh, position. A lot of these, and I don't know who comes to your M&A network events, you, you might control that in terms of who comes, but my experience has been, I, I tend to not go to networking events unless I'm a speaker, unless I'm organizing it. I don't want to be just one of, there's a lot of job seekers in early stage, the water reads, and there's nothing wrong with that, but you get a lot of that and it's, you got to ask yourself who's selling who. And again, I'm, I'm not criticizing what you're yeah. doing, I don't know anything about it, but that might be helpful looking at some of those CFO groups. Occasionally when I need services and stuff, I do use those fractional CFO and services out there, but I never thought about farming them like, Hey, would you like to be a more full-time partner type of thing? It's not a bad idea. The networking thing we do is actually really for beginners. We kind of say who you are, what you're looking for, what you're trying to acquire. And then we do a round of like, where are you stuck? And uh, after interviewing 160 people, I usually know a guy like you or somebody else. And I can pair people up. Like, don't call Bill if you've got it. If you're trying to sell your $500,000 heat and air services. I know he's been on my show, but that's not his thing. Here, call this guy. But, you know, also in the same realm, don't call Joe Broker. If you got a $25 million tech firm that's growing like mad and you're ready to talk to someone, you needed a mid-market investment sure. bank. I literally keep a, a database I call, I know a guy database. I built it on Airtable and it's like, what does each one of you guys do? What's your primary spot? So when people call me and go, hey, I need somebody to do X, Y, and Z, I can go back and search all these people and go, these four people are the ones they need to talk to. That's great. And especially with your early stage, you might want to do the interview question that I always do. People have been interviewed by me. They're probably trembling in fear when I ask this question, which I always ask them. This is the BS question that we all get by lazy interviewers to the interviewee. What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What are you good at? What are you bad at? And the reason it's a bad question, it's actually a wonderful question, is most people do what? They talk about very high level. I'm a people person. I work hard. Anybody can say that. That's not getting down into the nitty gritty. And then the big fallacy, and this is always fun for me, because I, I will tell people, I'm going to grade you too, and you're probably going to fail. Then I'll tell you my strengths and weaknesses, and we'll do it again. And maybe you'll do better. Because I want them to be more insightful and thinking about themselves. And so the weakness, they say, let's phrase weakness in form of strength. 
And so what do they say? I work so hard, I irritate people. And I always say, of all the things you could do in the world, you're an expert everywhere in sales and marketing and accounting and finance and building things and manufacturing, everything, leadership. You're just flawless. And the big set and the thing they don't do so well is you sometimes irritate people because you work so hard. And when you do that, sometimes it gets them thinking a little different. So what I tell them is, look, what I'm really good at is writing. I've always been good at that. And I've had to work very hard to find those skills and, and, and uh, hone those skills. And I feel very fortunate. I've had some opportunities to work with publisher and I've self-published books just for some folks. So I worked very hard at that to develop those skills. What I'm bad at is visual design. You're looking at the back of my house where I, I think the only wall that has any pictures on it. And of course, the, the wonderful uh, cover for the new book. I don't have any visual skills. And that, that came to me when the first edition came out, which was in spring of 2011. And I got the book and I was really happy. And I'm looking through it and thinking, holy cow, I wrote a book. This is amazing. And then I'm looking at the empty walls of my house. And I thought, I don't have any visual design skills. And so that for me has been freeing where I don't bother with the visual design stuff at, at work. I, I want to find people who are good at that, whether that's putting the document together, uh, a PowerPoint, things like that. It, it has been freeing. Let me work on the wo words and the messaging and things like that. Instead of me getting into something where I'm guessing, that has been incredibly free. I realized I was good at sales. I realized I didn't know anything about marketing. And the tip off there is Wiley sent me a book. They call it the author toolkit. I call it how to market your four dummies book for dummies. And as I'm flipping through that, I realized the marketing is left up to the author. I don't know anything about marketing. Maybe I can teach myself some things. And so I will ask people who have a marketing degree, what's the difference between marketing and sales? Most people completely flounder at this. And it's a very simple thing. Marketing is what you do to get a chance to make a sale. That's it. Yeah. Right. When, when I really thought about it, my, my great skill, what I think is taking a complicated subject and explaining it in a very simple, easy to understand manner. So I'll explain that. There's a few other strengths and weaknesses I have. Then I'll turn around to the other person. And then they usually do a little bit better. They dig a little deeper. So that might be helpful too. Yeah. Having them dig into what they're really bad at, not this platitude or this nonsense, right? I work hard and irritate people, but what their skills are, what they're good at, what they're bad at. It's interesting as I like to do the repeat their question, like their answer back to them and just cut it halfway off. The thing I'm really good at is I work so hard, I irritate people. The first comment I always say is like, irritate people? And I just think <laughs> totally silent. And they'll realize that they're starting to dig a little bit. And then we, then we switch gears. Okay, now, well, if you ask me that about business and stuff, and I tell, I tell you right now, it's the financials. I don't do my own. I know how to read them. I know how to see them, but I don't do my own accounting. I'm not an accountant. And if I do it, we're in trouble, right? So we bring in people that, to do that stuff. Our lead sponsor is an outsourced CFO company now, which I haven't switched over to yet because I'm not big enough to match their clientele, but I will be at some point. Everybody has strong strengths and weaknesses, and it's nothing wrong with it. People honestly think that they're not going to get a job or they're not going to be your partner because they have a weakness and you're going to be concerned. I think it's yeah. a strength to be able to identify those things. I hate doing repetitive tasks. If you need me to come to work for you and do the same thing every day in, day out, it's not going to last very long. It's just, I yeah. don't do repetitive. Like I joke around all the time. So I would outsource brushing my damn teeth if I could get somebody to show up my house in the morning and evening every day at the right time. I go to bed at different times, but I get up every day at 4 a.m. So if you could get here at 4 a.m. and you get there between 9 p.m. and midnight, depending on what I'm up to, I need somebody to come by and I'll smile and you do the brushing. But it's, it's until I find that I don't like repetitive tasks. 
understanding your strengths and weaknesses is key inside of an entrepreneurial skill set sure. and being able to tell somebody else what they are. I think it's a strength. I really do. I was at a, a dinner last, last year and a couple of people at the table and you get to talking to them and a uh, entrepreneur and he's got a real estate company and things like that. So I'm doing my usual strengths and weaknesses and business conversation over dinner. And he said, well, I don't have weaknesses. He was very, very short. Himself, very, very calm. Okay. So I just put that aside. And so I start talking and asking about work and I was able to steer him where I wanted to, which is I got him talking about the frustration without saying talk about the frustrations at work. We got on the subject of what he finds frustrating, which is people never do things the way that he wants to. He always has to get in there. I'm fixing everything. I'm doing everything. And he's going on and on about this as if it's a strength. And I look at him and I said, sounds like you're a micromanager. And he said, yeah, I guess I am. And I said, sounds like a weakness. <laughs> look at this poor guy's face. <laughs> and yeah, so a little bit, but he had not dug in deep like that and had done well, but had not dug in deep. And, and especially younger people. I wish somebody would have told me this when I was in my 20s. This is what we should be teaching kids. In high school, you should learn one thing. How do you learn? Are you reading preference, writing preference, visual, audio? Do you need to experience? And there could be a combination of those things too. It doesn't have to be. They're not mutually exclusive. And then in college, you should be figuring out strengths and weaknesses. Here's where I'm really good. Here's where I'm not good. Of the bad stuff, maybe some things I can fix and get better. Other things I'm hopelessly clueless about. And so I need to find jobs where I can help my strengths, use these real strengths, and find uh, where I fit in in terms of the weaknesses by being able to elaborate and discuss that and find situations where other people have strengths where I'm weak. That's what we should be teaching in college. We're doing it completely wrong. I think one thing that's totally missed is adequate. I call it storytelling, but I'm a huge believer that everything you have now, everything you've ever had in the past, everything you ever want to have in the future is a direct correlation to conversations you've either had, should have, or avoid having, or avoided having. And that said, the difference between me and you and somebody, I'm trying to think of Warren Buffett, is we're talking about mid-market companies and raising capital in the, me, on my case, hundreds of thousands of millions, in your case, tens of millions, hundreds of millions potentially to acquire companies where he's out there looking at billion dollar transactions on a regular basis, right? Different sure, conversations sure. with different people, but it's all in that. I think that most of the people I see coming right out of college, they really just don't know how to communicate. They don't know how to tell a passionate story about, and enroll people in their vision of what they want to do in the world with confidence and with, if you look at some of the lead people in this world, I mean, look at the guy, uh, guy that did WeWork, horrible business yeah. model, brilliant storyteller. The guy was absolutely yeah. just confident in his storytelling abilities, creating a vision and getting other people to buy into it to the tune of billions of dollars. When anybody with decent business sense would look at, okay, he's overdoing this a bit, right? It was just the, the math does not back up the story. But he, his vision was so strong, people would keep backing him and keep backing him. He's already, I think he's got another venture. They paid him to leave, and he, now he's got a new venture. There's a huge skill set in the ability to tell a story, to be sure. design a vision and get other people, what I refer to as enrolled in the vision, but get people to sure. buy in and be fully engaged and see that vision as their own and take ownership of that vision. That is a skill set that no matter what you're doing in the world, whether it's sales or entrepreneurship or raising kids is unparalleled with anything else. You're absolutely right. 
Yeah. And especially younger people, I get asked all the time, I want to do what you do. You're 23 years old. You're not going to, and there's nothing wrong with that. Be 23, learn from older people. I couldn't do what I did when I was 23. Mm-hmm. And a big part of that is the people that you can interact with as you get older. I, I think that you can interact with people roughly 15 years older, young. Yeah. So I'm, look, I'm in my mid fifties now. So guess what? People in their fifties are my peers. People in their sixties aren't that far away. So I can communicate with them into their their 70s. I understand their world and maybe people back into their 40s, I can understand. 25-year-olds, I don't understand. I was 25 once. I was far cooler than than they were, of course, when I was was the coolest 25-year-old in the world. And you would have known that because I would have told you. But when you're 25, you you know what? People in their 20s, maybe into their 30s, maybe you can, you know, teenagers you can still relate to. But I, I really think there's about 15 years. And so if you're a younger person, we see this all the time too. They, they work for a week and then they want to get promoted to be the president of the company. I, I, I want to run this thing. What am I going to partner? It doesn't work that yeah. way. You got to learn and, and sit back and observe people and figure out who you can learn from. And life should be about learning and constantly adding skills and learning things. And, and I always tell people when they're young people in their 20s, that difference going from 20 to 30 is, is enormous. The, the learning and and when you turn 30, you'll look back and think, wow, I'm different. I mean, I'm the same in a lot of ways, but the same person, but I know so much more, I'm, I'm more refined in my thinking and experience. And you don't realize that in your early twenties. And then every year that goes by, every decade that goes by, yeah, you'll continue to advance, but you won't see that as much. And think about someone in their early twenties, ask them today, when you were 20 versus when you were 10, were there some big differences in your life and your approach? And yeah, absolutely. So that's part of life too, especially in your twenties, you're still going through a process in life where you're going to be learning and changing and that, that continues your whole life. But as you get older, as you have more revolutions around the sun, that rate of change tends to slow down. Just yesterday, somebody on the, one of the meetings we were in said, my son's 17, he's uh, graduating here soon. He's graduating early. He wants to get into mergers and acquisitions. What's the path he needs to take? Is that he financing college and stuff? I was like, there's two paths, neither one of them are easy. One path is, yeah, he studies finance in college. He goes out to work as an analyst at some of the PE firms and stuff. He pulls 60, 80 hours a week for 10 years as an analyst, and then he learns this inside and out, and he can do it. The other path is he does the same thing, but he becomes an entrepreneur. He creates a business. He's an operator. He pulls 60, 80 hours a week. He fails a few businesses, wins a few million dollars, loses a few million dollars, and now he's an excellent operator, and he can get into mergers and acquisitions. Neither one of the paths are easy, right? If he wants a base, if he wants to do this, I mean, first of all, what's wrong with him? Why, why would he want to do this? But I'll tell him the five things. I'm just making a note yeah. here. Five things that if you really want to do this, and you're right, you might have an idea that this is what I want to do. And as I've said at the begin- at the onset of this podcast, something else, right? Something else often happens and leads you somewhere else. And maybe that makes more sense. You should be open to it. Accounting. You want the skills to do this job. You need to be, don't be like Ron. <laughs> you have to be an expert at accounting. And the way that you do this is you would take a lot of classes, be a CPA, and that would be ideal. Mm-hmm. But the test is take a balance sheet, take an income statement. You can look up publicly traded companies. You'll need two balance sheets and two income statements, starting and ending, same period. And then build this thing called a cash flow statement. And until you can, until you can do that, you don't have the right skill. So you have to teach yourself how to do that. Mm-hmm. You have to be an expert at math. If you struggle at math, if it just, you worked really hard to get C's in algebra, eh, this is probably not going to be what you want to do because we use a lot of algebra, maybe a little bit of calculus in this as well. So accounting, math, writing, you need to be an expert 
writing because you're going to be writing books and describing things and writing the offer. So you need to be a math expert, an accounting expert, a writing expert. And then if you want extra credit, what you want to do when you go out through college is spend a lot of time playing poker for money with your buddies. It doesn't have to be big stakes, but enough where if you lose, it stinks. Because you need to learn the skill, not bluffing. Everybody thinks poker is about bluffing. They think negotiating is about bluffing. If you bluff, you're going to get found out. What you need to do is understand, read the table, and understand the strength of your hand versus everybody else. And you have to learn in life, in, in M&A and in poker, how do I play weak hand? How do I play strong hand? Because if you have a strong hand and you bet the maximum, big numbers right off the bat, you chase everybody away and you win the ante. So learn how to play poker. And, and if you want to be in business, learn how to golf and, and be at least understand, you, you, if you're a great golfer, that's even better, but at least understand the nomenclature and the rhythm of the game. So writing, accounting, math, poker, and golf. You want to be an M&A guy? Those are the five things you need. To awesome. Ask. Good advice there. On the financial side, I can read the balance statement, income statements. I can do a cash flow statement, but often where I draw the line is, why the hell do they put this here? <laughs> you get these things from people like that just doesn't fit the mold. And the funny thing about accounting is I kind of look at accounting as you can have a hundred people who are CPAs, have them do the same business and do the same books. And you'll get 10 different sets of, you'll have some commonalities, like there'll be some groupings, but it's broad enough and people are opinionated enough. You're going to get 10 different sets. I'm not yeah. skilled enough to go that all out of these 10, these six are right. There's just different ways to do it. Yeah. And these four are flawed in some way. Yeah. The, the more complicated the business, certainly the more permutations you might have, especially when you're looking at, at, at assets. Do you expense those as it go right to the, to the, uh, the profit and loss statement? Do you capitalize that and then depreciate it over some period of time? And to what period of time? Yeah, absolutely. It can get uh, very confusing, but you should at least be able to understand right. it and understand why the cash flow statement is important because business owners, for some reason, they never show that. They always show the balance sheet, the profit and loss statement, income statement. They understand those. I want to see the cash flow statement. Why? Because it ties the two together. So I want to make sure that I don't have to dig in there and find any uh, monkey business or mistakes that are going on. But I also want to understand the nature of where the profits are coming from, how much is coming from operations. And even in the operations, are they making a, 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 a positive cash flow from operations because they're selling off inventory? or they're running up their payables. What's going on with all of those things? So the cash flow statement will show me that, show me how much money they're spending, investing in the business, buying equipment and so forth, and how much they're putting in or taking out by financing the business. I want to see that first and foremost. I've gotten the habit lately where I want to see the trailing 12 months, month over month, because I need to see cycles. Like every business I've found has cycles. Very few of them are steady. And you don't want to buy something at a peak cycle and think you have cash reserves and stuff and then realize that they make all their money in November, December, and during the Christmas cycle, and then the rest of the year, they're coming out of pocket to pay employees because they're not profitable. All right, it happens. A lot of businesses are that way. Sure, I grew up sure. well in one. I grew up, my dad was a painter and painter remodeling. I ran it from the time I was 16 until the time I joined the military and was 20. That was a very cyclical business, and we needed to keep people on staff during the week, during the winters, because we did have a few jobs to do. We did cut back. But if you didn't know that you needed cash reserves to make it through the winter because you're not going to be doing six houses a week during the winter, you're going to be painting a few, few kitchens and bathrooms and living rooms. But like you go from Absolutely. multiple crews down, but you don't know that stuff. If you just glance at somebody's balance statement, their income statement, even in their cash flow statement, looks great. Great business. 
you just bought it at the peak and the owner wanted to take all the cash with it like you're going and now you got to keep everybody on until you know next november when things start picking back up and you make your money well you want to understand working capital what's going on with working capital which is basically receivables plus inventory minus apm and there might be some prepaid right. other things there but you want to understand because if you have that cyclical nature you'll see that working capital go up and down and so you're buying working capital is essentially an asset that you're buying and you should place a value on that and that's that's one of the little nitty gritty things of, of doing an m a transaction is what is that working capital worth and do we see those big fluctuations and how do we account for that what would a reasonable target be that when i sell the company i'm supposed to have a certain amount of, of working capital if i'm over that then the buyer should pay me more if it's under that then that comes out of the sale price. You reduce the sale price by that. So that's a huge piece of the understanding that a lot of people uh, uh, glance over. It's a fallacy. It's a um, presentation that I'm, I'm working on. It's still just in the nebulous stage. But some of the mistakes that business owners make. So they have that short period of time. They have that one great month. That they want to extrapolate the maximum valuation, probably because they read something in the Wall Street Journal, on that month on that quarter on that relatively short period of time they want to extrapolate off that and that's why you have to look at not only trailing 12 but back three years four years five years right. what's really going on is right. this is uh, continuing to increase or does it kind of go up and down and basically is it steady state and do we expect it to be steady state for the next five ten years awesome we hit a lot of topic stuff what do you feel that we're missing what should we cover in our last few minutes here today that's a great question how do you normally that this is your show man how do you normally wrap these i wrap I wrap them up. One of my favorite things to do is if somebody walks away from, and all they remember is three things from the show, what would you want them to remember? That's my favorite ending question. Like all they can remember is three things. They got three key things to take away from this show and end up you and what you do. What would you want sure. them to, to remember by the, from the show? M&A game, merger and acquisition game, selling middle market, lower middle market companies, however you want to define them. M&A is microeconomic. Okay. Everybody is focused on the macro, on the, the big economy. Well, I want to time the market. Everybody wants to be the smartest guy in the room and, and time the market and somehow get to a, a sale, which might be eight, nine months, 12 months, 18 months from now, when you finally cross the line and close the thing, it's impossible to time the market. And it doesn't really matter what's going on with the economy. Yeah. I mean, certainly some big things can happen and that might have an impact uh, on, on a granular level on the microeconomic level, but a company is going to be worth what the company is worth, not necessarily what's going on with the economy. And the check there is a great company that's growing rapidly, uh, strong profits, strong profit margins, no concentration, management team that's not going anywhere. They're going to stay there. Every little, check the box, every great thing or almost every great thing you want with the business. So it's a great company. It's well-run. It's growing. The economy is in the doldrums. Who cares? That great company is still going to command a good, if not great price from probably multiple bidders, maybe even more so because finding good companies in a bad economy is going to be difficult. And the check there is a bad company, something that is declining, losing sales, maybe losing money or the profits are dropping, big concentration, owner viewed as integral to the business and the only wants to leave, senior management about ready to retire. So all the things that would give any buyer a pause, but the economy is going great. Guess what? That bad company, that struggling company in a great economy will struggle to find bids. So focus on your company. If you want to sell a company, if you want to exit at some point, focus on what makes your company valuable. Yeah, the, 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 grand, the, the big economy, the macro can certainly have an impact, but not as much as you think. It is microeconomic. That's awesome. How do people reach out to you? If they, first of all, what is your target market? If somebody wants to reach out and they want you to help them 
buy a company or sell a company? What do they need to come to the table with? What is your, I guess the demographics is the word I'm looking for. Sure. I'll give you a, can I give my firm a plug? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's always okay on the show to plug. I should have told you that ahead of time. You can find me at focusbankers.com. So focus investment banking. It's a firm that I'm, I'm with. We're a middle market investment banking firm. You can find my incredible bio on there. Reach out to me there. You can find me on my website, billsnow.com, or some people like to say bills now. Why would I want to pay bills now? <laughs> I didn't think bills. of that. <laughs> yeah, bills now. Billsnow.com. And I'd uh, be very happy to talk to you I'm on, on LinkedIn. You, you can find me pretty easily on LinkedIn as well. I work with middle market companies. So middle market business owners looking to sell the business, own or part of the business, or maybe sell off a unit or a division that's on the sell side. We'll work with buyers of companies as well. Uh, quite often larger companies, whether it's a private equity firm or a company in the hundreds of millions of revenue or billions in revenue, looking to do what? Acquisitions in the middle market, lower middle market. So that's broadly defined as revenues of at least 10 to 20 million, earnings of at least 2 million in EBITDA up to you know, 300 million in revenue. So if a company is 50, 60, 70 million in revenue, 100 million in revenue, that's right in the sweet spot, the type of companies that we work with. I've done a lot with manufacturing, distribution, some business services. I've got colleagues that run the whole gamut. So if you've got more of a techie, a SaaS deal, software as a service, in medical device, anything we, we've got, if it's not me, I've got a team members who will be able to help you out. That's awesome. And then, yeah. so Bill Snow's the, the website and then your business website, that's the place to go. I'll make sure those get in the show note. And, and I want to thank you, man. It was fun. We had a great time. We'll call that a show. Excellent. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace we have partnered with has a proprietary database of 50,000 plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software as a service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business, you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace, how to exit. That link will be in the show notes. Visit them now.